Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We have a fascination with scoundrels, especially if they are public figures. We love to build them up to celebrate their success. And then when they make mistakes and disappoint our false expectations, we love to tear them down. It's a cycle we see repeated over and over again. And this is not just an American phenomenon. It's a global one. The publisher Robert Maxwell is a keen example. Once celebrated for the publication of scientific knowledge around the world, for buying and rescuing the New York Daily News, for performing good deeds for British intelligence, he would turn out to be a common thief who ripped off working men and women and who then mysteriously disappeared on his yacht. And then there's his daughter, Ghislaine. It's a story like many that my guest John Preston tells worthy of cinematic treatment. For the moment, John tells the story in his new book, Fall. John Preston is a former arts editor of the Evening Standard and the Sunday Telegraph. For 10 years, he was the Sunday Telegraph's television critic and one of its chief feature writers. His book, A Very English Scandal, was turned into an award-winning BBC drama series, and his historical novel, The Dig, has been adapted into a new motion picture starring Ray Fiennes and Carey Mulligan. It is my pleasure to welcome John Preston here to talk about Fall, the mysterious life and death of Robert Maxwell, Britain's most notorious media baron. John Preston, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, it's great to have you here. First of all, talk a little bit about why Robert Maxwell is is any different than any other kind of mogul that flew too close to the sun and was taken down by greed and arrogance. I think one of the fascinating things about Robert Maxwell is that it's very hard to think of anybody in the 20th century who traveled quite as far from his origins as Maxwell did. He was born in a little town in the east of uh, what was then Czechoslovakia. There was a large Jewish population in the town. Maxwell himself was Jewish. Um, and he left when he was 15, 16, in 1939, essentially to find his fortune and to fight in the war. And then whilst he was away, three of his siblings, both his parents and his grandfather, died in Auschwitz. And that's really the kind of prism that you've got to look at Maxwell through. And he essentially, he comes to England, he tries to become an English squire and a gentleman, although it becomes very obvious that the English establishment doesn't really want to kind of, you know, admit him at all. And so he kind of ends up taking, playing their own game and he becomes determined to kind of bring down the British establishment from the inside. He becomes a Labour MP. As you say, he was a very, very successful science publisher of scientific books. And then things start to go awry, as it happens in many cases when people, invariably men, always men actually, decide they want to own a newspaper. That's where the rot really sets in. And in many ways, it was a classic story of, I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member, because no matter how much he got, no matter how successful he became, there was still this sense of being an outsider. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that Maxwell had, um, I don't know if you call it, it's a kind of like a particular complaint, and I feel it's very prevalent in English life, where you kind of simultaneously want to sit at the top table and kill everyone else who's sitting at top table. So Maxwell had enormous kind of envy and jealousy of the establishment. And, you know, he, he wanted to bring them down and join them. One of the things that you talk about is that, that this 
upbringing that he had really left huge gaps with him, that he was always trying to fill those gaps and really never was able to. I think that's, I think that is true. Um, I mean, he changed his name four times by the time he was 23. And there is a sense that, in a way, Maxwell never quite knew who he was. And, you know, he, he was a man of enormous vanity. And when he bought the Daily Mirror, um, which was Britain's biggest left-leaning tabloid in 1984, he invites enormous ridicule by plastering his face all over his paper. Um, and, you know, of course you can see that as just another symptom of his vanity. But I wonder if perhaps there was an element of trying to kind of get external validation that he was who he claimed to be. In what ways did that also drive his success? I mean, to your point earlier about how far he had come from his, from his roots, what drove his success? What was the skill that made him successful initially? Well, I think he was touched by genius, actually, in this respect. I mean, he, you know, he basically came from an absolutely dirt poor family. He had to share a pair of shoes in the winter uh, with one of his siblings. And in the summer, they'd all run around barefoot. And during the war, he joins up with the British forces. He actually fights with great distinction and he's awarded the military cross, which is the second highest medal for gallantry. But he's kind of dreaming all the time of finding this commodity which he can get for next to no money and which is going to be in huge demand after the war. And one day in 1946, he's sitting in Berlin. He's running this newspaper for the Allies, which has basically been set up to reintroduce Berliners to the virtues of democracy. And one day this man comes in, who's the biggest publisher of scientific journals, in Germany, he says, I've got a terrible problem. Can you help me? And essentially, no scientific research had been published in Germany throughout the war, as a result of which this man had an enormous backlog of material. And Maxwell suddenly thinks, my God, maybe this is the commodity I've been dreaming of. And it's, it's knowledge. And the great beauty of it, from his point of view, is that none of the academics and the scientists who'd written these papers really expected to be paid for them. They were just thrilled to see them in print. <laughs> so he basically uses, he gets all this stuff out from Germany uh, with the help of British intelligence who had paid to set him up in London. And it becomes the cornerstone of his publishing empire. Um, so, I mean, I think he, you know, it, that was an absolutely brilliant idea. And, you know, yes, it's very easy to see Maxwell, particularly in retrospect, as someone who was a creature driven entirely by expediency. But actually, although, you know, he always had one eye kind of fixed on his profit margins, the other one would periodically give out this unexpectedly idealistic glint. And I think, actually, he really did believe that, um, you know, science was a great force for good in the world. And there's no doubt that he, you know, by giving all these scientists a platform to disseminate their latest research, he paved the way for a lot of key advances in chemistry, physics, medicine, biology. So, I mean, there was that, you know, you know there, is, there is unquestionably 
the kind of greedy swine element to Maxwell. But there is another side as well. Did he really believe that or did he convince himself of that as a way to kind of justify what he was doing? No, I think he really believed it. And of course, you know, it's not until um, really until the 1960s that the greed starts to get the upper hand. Um, throughout the 50s, you know, yes, he's making a lot of money. And by the end of the 50s, he's the largest publisher of scientific uh, journals in the world. Um, but, you know, if only he could have left it there. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's no doubt that uh, he liked the trappings of wealth and craved them. Um, but I think that, you know, the, 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 as you said earlier, you know, one has this kind of strange sense throughout Maxwell's life that he's constantly grasping for this indefinable thing that will bring him a measure of fulfillment and satisfaction. And he never quite gets it. He becomes a member of parliament in 64. What was that period like for him? Well, Maxwell typically um, decided he was going to be prime minister before he actually became member of parliament. And uh, yeah, he, he was duly elected MP, Labour MP for a constituency called Buckingham. Um, and he gets to the House of Commons and he thinks people are going to kind of treat him like this conquering hero. Um, and actually, they just kind of laugh at him. And he makes so many speeches that um, his fellow MPs are kind of, would, would kind of tug on his jacket to try and get him to sit down. Um, but in most cases, there's no success whatsoever. And he has no real, he doesn't get anywhere as an MP. The only position of responsibility he's ever given it is he's been put in charge of the House of Commons Catering Committee. Um, so it was kind of a rude awakening for him. So having kind of been thwarted on that avenue to power, he then becomes fixated on owning a newspaper as kind of the next best thing. I want to come back to what you were talking about before in terms of British intelligence helping setting him up in business. What did, what did British intelligence get in return? What did they expect in return? Well, Maxwell, I mean, Berlin at the end of the war was divided into four zones. And uh, Maxwell, who had this enormous um, ability to kind of assimilate languages, was fluent in at least seven languages by then. So he could pass as it were, as a native from one occupied zone to the other. And, you know, he was a great asset to British intelligence. He loved subterfuge. Um, and, you know, he was good at staying below the radar. He was a kind of, he was rather like sort of Harry Lyme in the, in the film of The Third Man. Um, and he made himself very, very useful to British intelligence, which, I mean, you know, then British intelligence at the time was a kind of, rather gentlemanly club and Maxwell was uh, someone they just they never come across anyone like Maxwell before who was from a completely different background and he was a real operator and he made them look like kind of bungling amateurs and they did think to themselves my god this man is streets ahead of us in many respects let's you know let's back this horse and see what happens was there a fear that, that somehow he could turn on them or he could do something that would embarrass them? I think that came later, really. I think that at the time, they saw him 
as a useful asset. And he was still, you know, he was still a young man. He was only in his early 20s. Um, and they just thought, well, you know, we'll give him some money, some seed money, essentially, to start up his, um, his business, his publishing business, and see what happens. And he, you know, he goes and makes a roaring success of it. Talk a little bit about his quest to own a newspaper and the route that that took. Well, his quest to own a newspaper really goes back to 1963. Maxwell is in Australia. He's got, <laughs> um, he's got this fixation with selling encyclopedias, which is rather kind of taken over from scientific journals. And the, and the great beauty of encyclopedias, as far as he's concerned, is that if you, if you buy a subscription to an encyclopedia, you were locked in for kind of years, in some cases, decades. So it was a great cash cow for him. And he's in Australia. And he says, uh, someone says to him, oh, you know, you really ought to meet this, um, this young man who's in the same business as he called Rupert Murdoch. So the two of them have supper together. And as Murdoch admitted, you know, he was really pretty spellbound by Maxwell. And they agreed to go in business together, selling these encyclopedias. And Maxwell persuades Murdoch to stump up a million Australian dollars and he's going to become his equal partner. But before the deal can go through, Murdoch has lunch with a friend of his who's a publisher. And he starts telling him all about this. You know, he's met this fantastic man, this great deal he's going to have, and so on and so forth. And the friend starts laughing. And, and, and Murdoch goes, well, why are you laughing? And, and, and the friend goes, don't have anything to do with this man, Maxwell, and explains that the encyclopedias are actually bankrupt stock, which the publisher has offloaded onto Maxwell for nothing, that Maxwell is trying to get Murdoch to stump up a million Australian dollars for. And from that moment, I mean, Murdoch thought it was quite funny, but, and thought that really, you know, that was it. It vowed never had to have anything more to do with it. But actually, they were to remain entwined. Their fates were to really to remain entwined for the next 30 years. And essentially, every time that Maxwell tried to buy a newspaper, Murdoch would snatch it from underneath his nose. And it happened with the News of the World in 1966. It happened again and again and again. And it kind of drove Maxwell nuts. I mean, he came to see Murdoch as his arch nemesis, who was out to thwart him at every turn. I don't think Murdoch saw Maxwell like that. As far as, as, far as Murdoch was concerned, Maxwell was this kind of perpetual irritant that he could never quite manage to brush off. And it used to infuriate Murdoch that people would uh, mention their names in the same breath. And the fact that shared, they shared the same initials as well made it even worse. Um, but uh, Maxwell saw owning a newspaper as, and they quite rightly saw it as being a position of enormous power and influence. And indeed, when Maxwell finally succeeds in buying the, the Daily Mirror in 1984, which, not entirely coincidentally, Murdoch doesn't want because he's already got the Sun, which is the biggest right-leaning tabloid. The two of them, once Maxwell gets the mirror, the, Maxwell and Murdoch are the two biggest power brokers in British politics. So the Conservative Party know that they need uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch's support if they're going to be elected, and the Labour Party know that they're going to need Robert Maxwell's support. So, you know, that 
the way in which power operates now has changed enormously in the last kind of 30, 40 years. But they were hugely, hugely powerful figures then. In many ways, it does seem like a lot of Maxwell's fame and notoriety, particularly in this newspaper and media world, came about because he was always chasing Murdoch in a way. That Murdoch, even though Maxwell lost out on all these deals, the fact that Maxwell was competing gave him credibility on a par with Murdoch that he didn't really deserve early on. Well, I think he, I mean, Maxwell was a very successful businessman at one stage. Um, and he then lost everything at the end of the 60s, the beginning of the 70s, and uh, he was denounced by the, the Department of Trade and Industry in, in the UK as a person who wasn't fit to be in charge of a public company. But he then, you know, he then basically fought his way back, got his company back again. Um, so he wasn't, he wasn't just a kind of perpetual also ran to Rupert Murdoch. You know, he was, I mean, he had stature in his own right, but he, he had this fixation that he had to be on equal terms with Murdoch or kind of to best Murdoch. And it really, in seeking to prove that he belonged in the same arena as Rupert Murdoch, Maxwell set in chain this train of events which led to his kind of his emotional and mental and uh, physical breakdown, his, um, his, the collapse of his um, fi financial empire, and eventually, ultimately, his death. What was it that brought his company down, that brought him down back in the late 60s, early 70s? Well, essentially... The thing that had been dogging him uh, off and on for the last, you know, 20 years, which is that uh, he was artificially inflating the profits of his company. So he was about to sell uh, to an American called Saul Steinberg. Uh, Steinberg's accountants <laughs> went through the books and went, hold on a minute, this is pretty weird. Um, and uh, that, that's where, you know, the house of cards for, fell apart. Talk a little bit about his purchase of the New York Daily News, because that really was, was the, the penultimate moment in his career. Yes. I mean, you know, when, when he buys, um, when Maxwell buys the New York Daily News, beginning of 1991, uh, you know, the extraordinary scenes, he sails into uh, Manhattan aboard his luxury yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, named after his youngest daughter and favorite child. And uh, the New York Daily News has been embroiled in this extremely acrimonious industrial dispute uh, for months. And, and Maxwell is seen as this figure who's come to almost kind of save New York. And uh, when the purchase goes through, people literally break into spontaneous dancing on the street. The Cardinal Archbishop of uh, New York offers prayers of thanks and Maxwell walks into the most fashionable Chinese restaurant in Manhattan, and all the diners stand up and applaud him as he walks to his table. Uh, and yet only nine months later, he falls off the door, well, he disappears off the back of the same yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, in very mysterious circumstances. And by then, everything 
has fallen apart. But even then, even when Maxwell is making his triumphant entry into New York, the cracks are already beginning to widen. And Maxwell needed this kind of cosmetic exercise of, um, of buying the New York Daily News and all the acclaim that went with it to really try and convince other people and indeed himself that things were in better financial health than they appeared to be. And he wasn't really able to do that. He really wasn't able to use all the accolades that he got and all the recognition that he got to, to effectively cover up what he had been doing. No, but by then it was really too late and the cracks were beginning to widen. I mean, what he'd essentially done for the last four or five years, it was, he'd, been, he'd been churning money around in you know, ever-decreasing circles. So he would take money from one bit of his empire that was in comparatively good shape and use it to shore up another bit that was in bad shape. But the difficulty was he was perpetually robbing Peter to pay Paul and he couldn't keep up. And the banks who'd been falling over themselves to lend him money a few years earlier were starting to kind of, you know, smell a rat and call in the debt and Maxwell couldn't pay. What do we know about his death? What do we know and what do we speculate? Well, we know that at the end of October 1991, Maxwell went off on the Lady Ghislaine um, and he'd never been on board the yacht on his own before. Uh, I mean, the staff were there, but you know, normally he would go with this kind of retinue of people that'd be kind of executives from the Mirror or another part of his empire. But on this occasion, uniquely, he was alone. And they cruised around rather aimlessly around the Canary Isles for a few days. And Maxwell was due to fly back to London on the morning of November the 5th, 1991. And he knew that he was going to be effectively facing three firing squads because the police were after him, the fraud squad were after him, the banks were after him, and the mirror pension, pensioners had realized there was a gaping hole in the pension fund. And he disappears off the back of the Lady Ghislaine in, at about around three o'clock in the morning of the 5th of November. So um, the big question, of course, is uh, did he fall? Did he jump? Was he pushed? Um, and the reason, one of the reasons why 30 years on speculation is as rife as it is, is because there was a hideously botched autopsy by a Spanish pathologist um, which essentially failed to determine the cause of death and made such a mess of the body that no subsequent uh, pathologist could actually work out what had happened either. Um, I mean, I have, although there are unquestionably loads of people who are happy to have bumped off Maxwell by this stage, there's no convincing evidence that um, anyone that he was murdered. It just, and actually, it simply doesn't stack up in terms of credibility. Um, in terms of, you know, did he jump or did he fall? Strangely, the people I interviewed for this book split almost exactly 50-50 down the middle. I mean, Rupert Murdoch 
for instance, is, uh, remains absolutely convinced that Maxwell committed suicide. Um, my, my own feeling is that the, the, as it were, the dividing line between suicide and an accident may be a lot less clear-cut than is generally assumed. And, and my suspicion is that the answer lies somewhere along that line. Talk a little bit about his family. First of all, his sons. How did they fit into his empire? Well, Maxwell had nine children, um, two of whom died. Uh, There was a daughter who died very young um, towards the end of the 50s. And then Maxwell's oldest son, Michael, who was the heir apparent, um, was being driven back from uh, a party uh, back to his um, family home in Ox- Oxford when he was a teenager. And the car collided with a lorry and Michael was very badly injured and was in a coma for the next seven years and died. And it's at that point that what has hitherto been quite a happy family, albeit with certain provisos, um, the, the, the family dynamic really starts to fall apart and the mood becomes markedly darker. Maxwell becomes, was always something of a tyrannical father, but becomes more so. Uh, I think Kevin and Ian, who the ones who worked most closely with their father, bore the brunt of that. Um, and I think it was extremely difficult for them um, because Maxwell was at this stage a kind of angry unhappy man who turned against his extremely loyal wife um, and he didn't he didn't have any friends at all really because he was essentially incapable of relating to someone on a kind of equal level um, so he he does persecute his 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 children um uh and and i think probably kevin and ian more than the others um gillane was the youngest and uh she was born at uh, exactly the the same time as, as michael's car accident and indeed her early years were overshadowed by this pall of grief that sat over the family but she then did become her father's favorite and of course he named his yacht after her and i think she was probably less scared of him than her other siblings and she was better at diffusing his anger and charming him i think than the others and yet she more than the others kind of became her father's daughter yes i mean to some extent that's true i mean perhaps she was more like her father in terms of character than um, than her other siblings. Um, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of attempts to draw comparisons between her father and Jeffrey Epstein, um, but they don't particularly stack up. I mean, you know, unquestionably, they're, they're both very, they're both extremely rich men. Um, but Maxwell was a man who had to dominate any room that he uh, walked into, whereas. Epstein was a much, much more kind of shadowy, behind-the-curtain figure. Um, But yes, I mean, you know, plainly uh, the kind of 
ignominy of the Maxwell family name has rather settled on her, certainly for the time being. Talk a little bit about his business legacy. I mean, aside from the fact that that he moved all this money around, he stole all this money, was he or wasn't he successful in running his businesses? Yes. I mean, it's a tricky question because the answer is kind of yes and kind of no. I mean, he was successful. He made the mirror um, more profitable than it had been. Um, and he actually kind of paved the way for Rupert Murdoch to take on the, the print unions and essentially to break their stranglehold. Um, the difficulty was that he, you know, as, some, as one person said to me, you know, Maxwell wasn't so much amoral as pre-moral, uh, you know, that he was this great kind of jungle beast who just kind of blundered through the undergrowth with no sense of, right and wrong at all. I mean, I'm not sure that's entirely true, but he would always fly very close to the wind in terms of his business dealings. Um, And so everything, everything that he touched was tinged with a degree of suspicion. Uh, I mean, I think in terms of the legacy of his business dealings, people subsequently were less trusting uh, than they had been in Maxwell's day. I mean, one of the you know, absolutely bizarre things about Maxwell was that he made a lot of money in the early 80s, and um, and, and and you know, banks were queuing up to lend him more. And when on the very rare occasions, whenever people would question whether he was as rich as he claimed to be. Maxwell would just blithely say, oh, well, I've got billions stashed away in, in Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein is, is this tiny tax haven. Um, and, um, you know, the great virtue of it, as far as he was concerned, is that no one could actually see what he did or didn't have there. So they were forced to take with his word. So he'd basically go, oh, yeah, it's all in Liechtenstein. They'd go, oh, fine, 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 I'll have some more money. Well, actually, as it turned out, there was no, I mean, there had been money in Liechtenstein, but by the time he died, there was nothing left at all. It had all been, you know, the, everything had been drained. One of the other things that's so interesting is, is when he died, how vilified he was. That, that, that people that had been nice to him and cordial to him for so long, I mean, he was just totally vilified after his death. He was totally vilified, and you had this extraordinary situation where when Maxwell dies, uh, there's this enormous queue of world leaders, um, you know, saying what a fantastic person he was and a great, you know, force for good and a great humanitarian and so on. Um, and it's really only three weeks later uh, when it became apparent that in all over £750 million pounds was missing and £350 million pounds was missing from the Maxwell, the Mirror Pension Funds. So everybody turned on him with terrible ferocity and said, no, 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 we we always knew there was something dodgy about him. Um, And, 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 you know, now, 30 years later, he is still seen in the UK as the embodiment of of corporate villainy. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because there are serial killers who've had a better press than Robert (laughs) Maxwell. 
um, you know, and did he, was he really as black as, um, as history has painted him? And, you know, I'm not so sure. Sh- you know, he unquestionably did a very wicked thing in looting the pension funds. Um, but he wasn't the kind of Bernie Madoff figure who was solely trying to kind of um, line his own pocket. Uh, I mean, I think if he'd been able to, he would have paid the money back into the pension funds. Um, I mean, I've always sort of had a private theory that one of the reasons that people turned on him with such ferocity is that more than anything else, journalists hate to miss out on a good story. And at the mirror, they realized that they've been sitting on this fantastic story unwittingly for years as Maxwell was plundering their pension funds, and they'd missed it. So when they belatedly, um, you know, found out what had happened, their ferocity knew no bounds. Uh, and he was subjected to this kind of, um, uh, you know, great surge of posthumous re- revenge. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the kind of things that still has fascinated me throughout writing this book, and it still fascinates me, was, uh, you know, trying to, as it were, quantify Maxwell's moral qualities. Um, you know, yes, he, you know, he, he, he was, in many respects, a, a dreadful man. But, you know, let's just say, hypothetically, he died in 1961 instead of 1991. He would be remembered as this great force for good in the world. Um, so, I mean, you know, as we come back again to say, you know, there was another side. The villainous side, aside from the money, there's a story you tell about when he was negotiating with James Hogue to buy the Daily News. Talk about that. Yes, yeah, so essentially Maxwell comes into New York to, to, to try and buy the, the New York Daily News, um, which is, is then in such an appalling state financially that they're happy to, to give it, to basically give it to anyone who's prepared to take it off their, uh, off their hands. And, uh, and Maxwell is negotiating with uh, James Hogue, who's, uh, who's the proprietor of the Daily News. And uh, they're having a sort of lunch. Maxwell's butler comes in and serves lunch to him in the middle of these negotiations. And uh, Hogue looks away. And then as he's looking away, there's this enormous crash. And he turns back. And Maxwell has picked up this tray with his plates and cutlery and everything on it and wine glasses and it's just dropped it on the floor and and you know food goes everywhere there's broken crockery and everything and uh, and the butler comes back in he goes yes sir and maxwell goes says it's cold bring me something else and what makes the most impression on jim hogue is that neither maxwell nor the butler behave as if anything remotely untoward has <laughs> got on finally what did murdoch really think of maxwell I think Murdoch despised Maxwell, frankly. I think he thought he was a buffoon and an egomaniac. I mean, when I was interviewing uh, Murdoch, he said, you know, uh, you know, Maxwell always plastering his face over his own papers. You never see my face in any of my papers, which, of course, is true. Don't, actually. Um, and I think he, he did feel that his fate was in some 
awful way entwined with that of Maxwell's. And it, and it, you know, it was a source of enormous, I think fury might be pushing it, but I mean, yeah, certainly extreme irritation. Um, and his attitude towards Maxwell plainly had not softened at all uh, in 30 years when I went to see him. Interesting how many demons Maxwell had. Yes, I mean, you know, really, it's, you feel, you know, I said at the beginning that it's hard to think of anyone in the 20th century who journeyed as far from his origins as, as Maxwell did, and yet you do have this sense that the older he becomes, it's almost this kind of sense of the past snapping at his heels and saying to him, you know, almost mockingly, you can't escape where you came from. And I think that he was increasingly haunted by what happened to his family. And I think he had terrible survivor guilt. I mean, his son Ian told me a story about um, towards the end of his father's life, he'd gone into his father's bedroom and his father had kind of early flat screen television, this enormous thing mounted on the wall. And, he, and Ian walks into the room and his father is standing with his nose pressed up against the glass of the TV screen. And on the, on the television is a documentary um, uh, which shows people being unloaded from trains, Jews being unloaded from trains at Auschwitz. And Ian says, what are you doing? And Maxwell straightens up and turns around and says, I'm looking to see if I can spot my parents. And whatever you think of Maxwell, you know, that is a desperately poignant story. John Preston, the book is Fall, The Mysterious Life and Death of Robert Maxwell, Britain's Most Notorious Media Baron. John, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Not at all. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.